0: Well, do take a copy of God's Word and turn to First Samuel chapter one. That's page two hundred and twenty-three. If you would like to use the Bible provided for you in the pew rack, <clears throat> as you're turning there, um, I'll remind you we're beginning a new sermon series. Uh, we finished up Romans eight this summer, and now for the foreseeable future, we'll be in First and Second Samuel in the evenings. We're going to begin First Corinthians. Um, So today is the beginning of a lot of new things. I forgot to mention earlier in the back in the narthex, there are these little cards. These are great to put, um, uh, keep in your Bible or put on your fridge at home that have um, a a calendar of the different um, fall events going on. So when the women's Bible studies are, the men's study, uh, prayer meetings, things like that. So um, even as we begin a new sermon series, we have other studies that are starting up, and this is a good time to put that in your calendar and make those a priority as um, part of the life of the church. Today, First Samuel chapter 1, and we read uh, the first 20 verses. This is the word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite he had two wives the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peniah and Penina had children but Hannah had no children now this man Elkanah used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The book of Samuel, and it is uh, in the Hebrew, uh, originally one book. We We know it as 1st and 2nd Samuel, but really it is just Samuel. The book of Samuel is about perhaps the most significant moment um, or development, I should say, the most significant development in Israel's history and also the most important figure in Israel's history. The development is the institution of the monarchy, the kingship. And the most important figure is that king who is after God's own heart, David but if the commencement of the Davidic dynasty uh, Through God's covenant is the high point of Israel's story The book of Samuel starts at a low point we start in an obscure place with an obscure woman and her prayer to have a child Why is that? Why is that how Samuel begins? I think there are at least two reasons. I think one is primary and the other is secondary. The secondary reason I think the book starts this way is because it is a helpful way for us to get the context uh, of Israel at this time. And by that I mean this, that Hannah's barrenness is indicative of the spiritual barrenness that Israel is experiencing at this point in their history. Her barrenness is indicative of the spiritual barrenness of the nation. Uh, this is not a good time to live in Israel. Um, with apologies to, to Mr. Dickens, we could rewrite Samuel and it would begin like this. It was the worst of times and just the worst of times. That's it. Uh, we're, we're, we're starting right where we left off in Judges, and you remember the theme of Judges. It's about the moral decline of the nation. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes because there was yet no king in Israel. We're waiting, uh, the way the authors uh, uh, write the narrative, we're supposed to be waiting for a king to help the nation out. The reason there's a moral decline is because there's no king to guide the people. That's how Samuel begins in this place of moral decay. Um, God even said back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that one of the indications that the people would be faithful is that they wouldn't have women like Hannah. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 7. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or even among your livestock. If they had kept God's law while they occupied his land, that would have been their experience, and it's not. So clearly they're not keeping God's law. So the existence of Hannah or women like Hannah at that time is evidence that the nation is not living up to their covenant responsibilities before God. We're also told that the priests at this time are two characters named Hophni and Phinehas, and with priests like them, as we're going to learn, uh, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the nation is not doing well. They are very uh, corrupt individuals. So why does the story of Samuel, which is about the greatest moment, uh, the development of the kingship, and and the greatest character, uh, David, uh, why does it start with, with Hannah? Well, there's one reason to set the context of the entire nation. But besides that, there's another reason that Samuel opens with childless Hannah and her desperate prayer. And I think it's the more important reason. And that is this. We open with her and not with David because David is not the main character of the story. In fact, neither is Saul and neither is Samuel. God is the main character of this book. God is the main character. This is a book that is about God's, uh, God sovereignly working out his divine plan, even through unexpected and unthinkable ways, uh, even through obscure characters who are here for a chapter and a half and then gone forever. And we're going to see that time and time again, the way that God uh, works in ways that we would not expect throughout the story of Samuel, even as we see it in the text before us in these first 20 verses. Now, you recognize the details of this story, don't you? Even if you're not terribly familiar uh, with the story of Samuel and the story of uh, Hannah and Samuel, if you know the Bible at all, this, this sounds oddly uh, familiar, because this is not the first time we've encountered a barren woman in distress praying to have a child. Uh, And so the first thing I want us to notice this morning is is a familiar scene. That's the first thing, a familiar scene. We've seen elements of this story before. Uh, Most significantly in Sarah, Abraham's wife. It was to Abraham that God promised his covenant of grace where... God assured Abraham that it was through him uh, he would work out his salvation for his people and for his his program, his plan for the whole world, and he was going to make Abraham uh, the father of, of uh, a great nation, and yet the years go by, and now Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and it's starting to look like God's not going to follow through or not be able to follow through on that promise. Of course, Isaac eventually comes, but then the same thing happens with him and with his wife, Rachel, and then it happens with Uh, their son Jacob, and his wife uh, Rebekah. And the story repeats itself even a fourth time before Hannah comes, and that's with the wife of Manoah. We don't even know her name, but she's the mother of Samson. The same thing happens there in Judges. She conceives after being visited by the angel of the Lord. So it's interesting that in the face of barrenness, it seems that God often shows up and does a, a marvelous, miraculous work. That is to say this, God's unfolding plan of redemption often finds its advancement its next stage the next chapter in a home in a home from human perspective that appears to be nothing but a dead end now why is that a repeated theme in scripture why do we keep finding these women who can't have children all of a sudden having children Uh, is god a one-trick pony is this like the only thing he can do what's the deal why does this keep happening no This is the reason he's teaching us a lesson, and he knows how thick we can be. He has to teach us over and over again, and the lesson is this. It's a lesson about his sovereignty and about our smallness. There is perhaps nothing that demonstrates man's inability and yet God's omnipotence more than for God to intervene in the midst of barrenness. All the best, play, best laid plans of human cunning and ingenuity come to nothing when biology just doesn't work. Even today, with all of our technological advancements, there's still a limit, a limit to what we can do when cells don't, don't work right. Um, the only thing that perhaps would display um, God's greatness and our inability more than this would be for God to work um, a resurrection. And he does that, too doesn't he? In fact, this is sort of like a resurrection, isn't it? God's bringing life uh, to where, uh, life where before there was only death. And and this is God's indication that he's about to intervene in the life of the whole nation uh, and grant opportunities that did not exist before. So if the scene looks familiar, it's because as long as the world is still turning, we will never have a shortage of opportunities to experience God's Sovereign grace overriding our sin, our folly, our ignorance, our limitations, our inability, and our smallness. That's what he does. Here's how one commentator summarizes the significance of Hannah's story. He said, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And that's good news. Because that means if you feel empty today, if you feel like you're at the end of your rope, if you feel frustrated with your failures in life and your limitations, then cheer up because you are exactly where you need to be for God to do something wonderful. We see that in this story and as we dive in. We notice uh, immediately, we're struck that in the midst of this familiar scene, we have a faithful servant. The second thing today to notice, a faithful servant, namely Hannah. It's impossible, I think, for your heart not to go out to this dear woman. Her story is a sad one. She's married to a man named Elkanah, who appears to love her very dearly, although he also has another wife, Penina. Now, the Old Testament never explicitly... Uh, condemns polygamy, but I don't think it has to, does it? I mean, in the description of this story, you have a clear prescription against the practice. There is no time in the Bible where they describe, where the authors describe a polygamous marriage and everybody's happy. Never. Um, And and certainly not the case here. In this instance, Penina is able to have children and Hannah is not. Uh, Again, that's a work of God's sovereignty. Twice we're told in the text, God is the one closed her womb. This is his decision. Uh, But Penina, who is able to bear children, takes every opportunity to rub it into Hannah's face, uh, so much so that she is described as Hannah's rival. Uh, Perhaps there's animosity on Penina's part because she knows that Elkanah loves Hannah, uh, perhaps more than her. And so she feels like she's insecure. She needs to make up for that by putting Hannah down. In all likelihood, the only reason Penina is part of the family is because Hannah couldn't have children. Uh, the same reason, why is, why does is Hagar factor into Abraham's family? Because Sarah couldn't have children. So it's not as though uh, Elkanah uh, loves Penina, so he pursues after her. She's probably second string. Well, you know, it didn't work with Hannah. That was plan A. Let's try with Penina. So she's insecure as well, and she takes it out on Hannah. And she... Um, asserts over and over again the one thing that she has on that uh, woman which is children and it appears that the time that penina loves to do this is when they would go up annually for a a time of family um, uh, a family's annual trip for worship at the tabernacle in shiloh each year they would make a sacrifice to the lord and have a great big feast with the animal that was slain Uh, most of the uh, food of the meat that was was um, sacrificed and then cooked up would go to Penina, verse 4, and all her sons and all her daughters. And yet, Elkanah would give Hannah a double portion. He would give her two servings because he loved her. And his, his heart broke for her, so he gave her this double portion. And yet, although he means well, I think that would be embarrassing to Hannah for at least two reasons. On the one hand, it's far too much food for just her. But then on the other hand, it's far too little food compared to all that's on Penina's side of the table. And Penina loved to rub in Hannah's face what they all believed to be the theological implication of such a situation. And nobody back then in Israel would have needed to voice this, but the implication would have been, God loves me more than he loves you, Hannah. God loves me more than he loves you, and all the mouths I have to feed are, is proof of it. While Hannah is, is uh, grieved by this, notice what she does with her grief. Uh, the text tells us she's greatly distressed, describes her grief in various ways, And talks about her being anxious and vexed, um, distressed, and and, uh, weeping bitterly. What does she do with this? Uh, She takes the pain of the persecution from her sister wife and the grief of her barrenness, and she goes to God. She escapes the intolerable situation with her family, and she flees to the tabernacle. It is... Uh, The word used there is temple, but this is not the final temple that we'll read of of later on under Solomon. Uh, Most likely just the tabernacle there. And verse 10 says, she weeps bitterly. Now, there is such a thing as uh, tears of uh, self-pity. We have all cried those, I am sure, from time to time. Uh, But there are also tears, not of feeling bad for ourselves, but of coming to the end of ourselves. Of um, being desperate. And in distress, Hannah's tears are the latter, and the reason we know that is because she cries them before the Lord. Right? Tears of self pity are just for us, maybe for somebody else. We want to um, uh, get to feel bad for us, but when you're crying these tears before the Lord, uh, these are genuine tears. Then, and when the stresses and disappointments of life become so overwhelming that all we can do is cry, there's comfort in this text because it tells us that God hears that. Um, We don't need to formulate coherent prayers. In fact, the Bible seems to suggest that at times the tears are prayers themselves. Uh, Psalm 6, 8, For the Lord heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord heard the sound of my weeping. Uh, Hannah will go on to say to Eli that she's, Pouring her heart out before God. Do you pray like that? Do you pour out your heart before him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a wonderful word about this kind of praying in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. This is what he says. He says, It matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. What matter is the faith which lays hold on God and touches the heart of the Father who knew us long before we came to him. If God, Listen to this. He says, If God were ignorant of our needs... We would have to think beforehand about how we should tell him about them, what we should tell him, and whether we should tell him or not. But faith, which is the mainspring of Christian prayer, excludes all of that reflection. It just comes to God, right? The faithful one just flees to God, and we pour out our hearts before him. We just cry sometimes. Because Hannah believed God already knew her distress she could be real with him she's just real with him she's just vulnerable she's she's open about her situation in her prayer in verse eleven look there in verse eleven notice how she presents herself as a humble servant of Yahweh she acknowledges that he is the Lord and that she's the servant uh, she acknowledges that he can do whatever he pleases and so she's she's um, underscoring that God is is in, in, uh, is completely able to do whatever he wants but while acknowledging his great ability, she vows, she vows a matched willingness, a willingness to do whatever it is that God is is uh, choosing. So, God, you can choose to do whatever you want, and I want you to know that whatever you choose, I will follow after you. Even if you choose to give me a son, she says, I'll be willing to give him back to you. That's what the language of the, the uncut hair is all about. Number six, you can read about the Nazarite vow. Uh, these were ways that people would dedicate themselves to the Lord. One of the ways is they would not cut their hair. And so, what Hannah is saying is, if you give me a child, she's she's acknowledging he's really more yours than he is mine. Now, what what an example for us! What a lesson there is to learn here. Um, when was the last time you wanted something really, really badly? The answer is, you know, this morning, probably, right? We're, we're rarely ever just content with what we have. There's always something out there that we wish we had, or we wish we could be, or we wish we could do. Now, here's the question, though. So the, the question isn't so much, when was the last time you really wanted something? It's, the last time you wanted something, did you want it so that you could give it back to God? That's a faithful servant. That, that's, that's what Christians are meant to do. That's what Hannah's doing here. She's, she's being a true Christian because a Christian says to the Lord, all I have is yours, God, and even that which you have not yet given me, when you do, I will give it back to you. It's amazing. The only way you and I can, could, can ever slake that insatiable thirst for more is to learn that everything we have comes from God and it all belongs to him Anyway. We hold everything in life with open hands, even something as significant, or perhaps I should say, especially something as significant as our children. And so in response to this prayer and this vow of a faithful servant, we see finally a faithful Savior in Yahweh. See the Lord who deals kindly with Hannah. And compassionately with her, even when everybody else seems to misunderstand her. Have you picked up that theme so far in, in the chapter? Nobody gets Hannah. Right there, she is um, distressed at the table, at the dinner table, because uh, Penina is is um, flaunting all the children she has, and she's not eating. And Elkanah, you know, puts his arm around her shoulder and says, "There, there, honey." Well, why are you so sad about the, the whole thing like you can't have kids? You got me. Aren't I enough? Typical guy, right? Like, what else do you need? Isn't my love for you the love of ten sons? And she's like, no. <laughs> so he doesn't get her. And then she goes and she ple- uh, pleads before God for him to, to open her room. And while she's praying, who looks on but, but one of the priests at that time, Eli... And here's this woman in distress, and she's praying, the one who should understand what it's like to come before God in a moment of distress says, you're drunk. You're drunk. Nobody gets this woman except for God. God always gets us. God always gets you. I bet you there's somebody here today who feels like nobody gets me. And I I just want to say that might be true. You might be going through something in life right now where you feel like nobody gets you, and maybe they don't. But God does, because in the person of Jesus Christ, we're told we have a Savior who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He gets us, and that's that's shown to us here as the Lord answers Hannah's prayer, uh, while Alcana and Eli don't get Hannah. God does. And he gives her this son. Now, was he being faithful to Hannah? He's certainly being kind and and gracious to her. But the faithful savior I I, I want us to see, or or the way he's being faithful, is not just in what he does for Hannah, but it's in what he does for the nation. It's what he's doing, what he does for you and me, even in this scene. I think that's what we're really meant to, to see, that he's being faithful to all of Israel, to all of his people, not just Hannah. Or maybe a better way to say it is he's being faithful to his people through Hannah. It's, it's astounding if you think about it. He answers the prayer of a humble servant, and in that prayer is also packaged the needs of an entire nation. Their, their next judge, their future leader, uh, uh, the, the next prophet, the future kingmaker, the one who will anoint David, comes as a response to this prayer from Hannah, this faithful servant. I think that's something inspiring for each and every one of us here, That to know that God uses the humility, the faithfulness, the, the piety, the godliness, the holiness, um, the, the simple obedience of the most obscure people, people like you and me, to work out his amazing story and to um, bring about his purposes. How might he use our faithfulness if we would just be willing to give it to him? It was Robert Murray McShane who said, It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. God doesn't need giftedness. He just wants godliness. right? And when we are faithful to him, he does amazing things. Who knows what God could do in and through you if you would commit yourself to obeying him, following him fully, And being prepared to give him everything that he gives you back to him. And would anybody have expected Hannah to give Israel their future leader? Of course not. Elkanah didn't even expect her to give him a son. That's why he marries Penina. He has such low expectations uh, of Hannah or even what God could do through Hannah. And yet, it is through Hannah that God gives Samuel and follow along. This is what happens. It's through Hannah that God gives Samuel. Through Samuel that God gives David, and it is from David that God gives you and me Jesus. This is how God works. He is not bound by our expectations. That lesson, perhaps, is even being taught in the name given to the boy. Look at verse 20. We're told that Hannah names her son Samuel because, she says... I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, generally in the Old Testament, when we read something like this, somebody gives a name and it says, because, yada, yada, yada. The reason is they're giving us a little Hebrew lesson because the name means the thing that uh, they're saying there. And yet that's not the case here because Samuel does not mean asked from the Lord. It's really interesting. It does not mean that. Uh, It means either the name of God, the name of the Lord, or heard of God or heard from God. It does not mean asked from God. It does sound like it, though. It does sound like asked of God. So you have Shamel, Samuel, Shamel, which really means heard from God or or God heard. Shamel or Sha'el, which means asked from God. Sha'el, we know in English as Saul. Saul. Now, he's going to become a very significant character in this story. And it seems that the narrator here of of Samuel is, is preparing us for this major lesson, which is God is not bound by our expectations, because what he's doing here is he's drawing out the irony that Samuel, the boy who is actually asked of from the Lord, will be eventually rejected by the people, whereas Saul whose name in reality means asked for, is the one rejected by God. She's saying here, as she names Samuel, uh, she's saying he is really the one that we should be asking for. He is really the one that God is going to use. Even though in the future, Israel is not going to think that. They're going to reject him, and they're going to go after another. It's because he doesn't meet expectations, But God's not restricted by our expectations and praise him for that because our expectations are so low, our thoughts are so small, and our greatest fantasies and dreams pale in comparison to the grand design that God has planned from eternity past and will always bring out to perfect uh, completion. If we are not willing to accept that God works outside of our timetable or that he can and does use methods that seem useless to us, then we will be prone to doubt his faithfulness to us and even to reject his provision for us when it comes. And that would be a tragedy if you did that today. And that tragic story has played out before. Where where people, because they were thinking God had to operate according to their expectations, they rejected God's provision for their ultimate need, namely their sin when it came. Because it didn't seem right. You know the story. The story of another birth. Um, That child, as he grew up, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Friends, I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, God is providing you fullness for your spiritual emptiness. And it is through simple faith in his Son, faith that he is the way, faith that he is the answer, faith that he is enough, that you will find... Peace in the midst of doubt and anxiety. Hannah leaves the story, and her face is glad. If you want to leave today with that change, perhaps you came in and you were you were overburdened and you're distressed and and you're perplexed and you feel like people don't get you. But if you want to leave today with a total change of disposition, then you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's the solution. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But if you have faith in him, if you do receive him, if you do believe in his name, there's something amazing that happens. He gives you the right to be a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Would you help us to be uh, faithful to you? you who are so faithful to us. Would we give you everything that we have because you have given us your Son? And even when we feel empty and barren, Lord, would we find in the gospel that you make us full? We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.